We started this series several weeks ago, honest questions that deserve honest answers. And we're looking at some of the difficult questions that people ask us as followers of Christ, questions that are real to them, questions that are important to them, and questions that really kind of get to the heart of what faith is all about. And we're not talking about, you know, sometimes we get distracted into the silly questions. Ever had a debate with somebody on how many angels can fit on the head of a pin? Or can, can God make a rock so big that he can't move it? And all those things are simply distractions. Take us away from what truly matters in the questions that are burning in the lives and the hearts and the minds of people. Last week we started on this question that I think is, in my opinion, is the heart of the matter. It's a question that burns in people's lives. If you'll ever sit down and have a philosophical conversation with people and get around to this point, you'll, have, you'll get some great answers, you'll have some great discussions. But it's also the question that people don't want to get into a, a discussion about because there are so many different worldviews. There are so many different uh, ways of seeing life, so many different opinions, and so many different um, attitudes. And quite honestly, so many different religions. It's important and it's vital that as followers of Christ, we can give an answer to the question, what is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of life? What are you here for? What is your great purpose on earth? Last week I gave you, as we started this, I gave you a list of statements from great minds of the, uh, of the past of history and what their thoughts were on the matter. And most of them centered around existence and being good and doing good and making a contribution. And that's generally, if, if you were to talk to most people and they were to give you an honest answer about what they think this life is all about, usually it's been my experience that those conversations would always revolve around being a good person, treating people well, making a contribution to society, getting along with others, being the best version of you that you can be. We live in a world where there are more self-help books um, out there that can tell you how to be a better person, how to be a whatever, um, and how to, how to be the best version of you but nobody ever truly gets to the heart of the matter. And I believe that much of the reason for that is because the starting point that most philosophies come from is flawed. And they think that we as human beings can make ourselves better. We can, we can do these things and we can, uh, we can uh, from within... You know, maybe you've heard of a, a, a spark of divinity that God has placed within each one of us, although there's no biblical reference for that. And it always starts from us being able to be our own solution to our own problems. And that sounds good. And quite honestly, when I come with the pin to stick it in that balloon to burst it, I'm the one that comes off looking like the bad guy, or maybe you come off looking like the bad guy. Because 
Everybody thinks everybody should be nice and kind and gentle. And here I am saying, being nice and kind and gentle is a wonderful thing, but it has absolutely nothing to do with the meaning of life. It has nothing to do with the purpose, the true purpose of life. And we started talking about a lot of that last week, and we're going to continue talking about that this week. And the reason we're digging into these questions so deeply, and especially this one, is that if you can't answer that question for yourself, if you don't have a valid answer for yourself as to what your life means, as to what your purpose here is as a follower of Christ, not as your parent's child, not as a worker for such and such corporation, not even as a good neighbor, but as a follower of Christ. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your personal savior, you should be able to give a solid biblical answer as to what the purpose of life is. And I believe, and where we're going to be going with this today and, and next week, is that not only should you be able to give that answer from the mindset of understanding and knowing what the scripture says, but you should be able to give that answer through a life that is lived. You should be able to show people that what you believe the purpose of life is here on earth really does matter to you and that it actually changes the way you live. Let's go ahead and read our text, John chapter 6, verses 25 through 35. If you'd stand with me as we read <clears throat> God's word. It says, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs, but, you, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. What can we do to perform the works of God, they asked. Jesus replied, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. Man, right there, right there, Jesus gives them the answer. Now, they didn't want to hear it. They didn't like to hear it. Maybe you don't like to hear it. Maybe other people don't like to hear it. But Jesus, in a nutshell, wrapped up your purpose in life right there, right there. They didn't understand what he was saying because they responded this way. Well, what sign then are you going to do so that we may see and believe you? They asked, what are you going to perform? Our ancestors ate the man in the wilderness, just as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is not the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus answered, he says, I am the bread of life. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. You may be seated. Father, as we dig into your word this morning, Lord, would you open up our eyes and our spirits and our hearts so that we might see exactly what you, you, the, the message is that you want to give to us. We might see exactly what our purpose is, or at least see the direction that we should be going. God, give us wisdom now in these few, next few moments. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, what's crazy about this passage to me 
It... <laughs> Two things had happened right before this, okay? If you read back in the Gospel of John right before this, Jesus had fed five, over 5,000 people. Remember, said it last week, and I'm sure you've heard it if you've been in church any length of time. I'm sure you've heard that in those days, they only counted men. They didn't count women and children when it came for an overall count. So the feeding of the 5,000 is a great title. It's a great description of that event. But it's more likely that Jesus fed 15, 20, 25,000 people on this day. These people... Okay, they saw that Jesus was gone and the disciples were gone, so they followed him. What they didn't know was that during the night, Jesus, um, and we'll get to this in a minute, there was only one boat, and Jesus didn't get in the boat with them, yet he beat them to the spot they were going. They didn't understand, they didn't know that Jesus had walked on the water the night before. Feeding them from five biscuits and two fish wasn't enough. They wanted to see more. They wanted to know more. So Jesus gave them some teaching. You remember the story in Exodus 3.14, right? When Moses was leading the children of Israel. He was preparing to lead the children of Israel out of bondage in Egypt. They'd been there for 400 years. And it was time for them to make the journey to the promised land. God was going to to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant with his chosen people. And it was time for them to leave. And Moses was a bit hesitant. Remember he said, I'm not a man of words. I don't speak well. And God took that away. Now, this this is the same God who appeared to Moses in a burning bush that wasn't consumed. All right? And he said, well, take your brother Aaron with you. So God got rid of all of Moses' excuses and complaints. And then Moses said, well, who do I tell them has sent me? God said, I am. I am has sent you. What did he mean? (laughs) The word I am came to be known among the Jewish people, the Jewish faith, and now has come down to us to understand that what God said in that one statement was that he is the eternal one that has been from the beginning and will be forever. Not only the eternal one, but the eternal self-existent one. Nobody keeps God alive. He endures on his own. He used this phrase several more times, Deuteronomy 32. He said it in several times in Isaiah. He used that name for himself. And it wasn't nearly, merely a name, wasn't merely a title. It was also a declaration of who God is. It's a declaration of his divine nature and his eternal existence. God declared to Moses and the Israelites not only who he was, but what he was going to do for them. So when we come to the Gospel of John and Jesus is now speaking, and Jesus is taking this opportunity to teach, he uses this phrase seven times in the Gospel of John about himself. And I know, I understand it fits um, grammatically. 
But there was more to it than that. Not only was Jesus describing to the crowds who he was, he was making a declaration of the fact that he is the eternally existent one. And he was also saying, because I exist eternally, because I have been from the beginning and will be to the end, because I am the Alpha and the Omega, because I am the one who created all things, this is what I'm going to do for you. This is what I can do for you. And in the Gospel of John, there are seven I am statements that Jesus made to the crowds. Now, what's interesting about these statements is that every one of them follows some miracle or significant event that Jesus used as a springboard to launch into a very prevalent and deep teaching. So we didn't, we see that Jesus didn't just do miracles to be a showman because that's what these people were looking for at this time, right? <laughs> he had just fed a, a massive crowd. It, it, to put that, under, in, in the, that crowd into perspective, the possibility of the size of that crowd, East Long Meadow is a town of about 18,500 people. And that's probably within the range of the size of the crowd that Jesus fed with a little boy's lunch of five biscuits and two fish. And, th and, and remember, there were 12 baskets left over. And that wasn't enough for them. That wasn't enough for the, for the whole crowd because they said, okay, now what sign? As if it was a circus or the Big E. Okay, what are we going to do next? You ever gone to the Big E and gone from, from booth to booth to see who has the better deal or who has the... The better whatever. Just <laughs> That's what they were looking for. They were looking for a show. But Jesus took those opportunities. Once he got their attention with what he did, he now told them what he wanted to do for them. And that's what he wants to do for us. So as we look at this question what is the purpose of life? What am I here for? And once you answer that basic question that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, and not only is he a Savior, savior of the world, he's my Savior. You see, it's, it's great to have an understanding and a knowledge of theology or topics, whatever it may be. But until, when it comes to our faith, when it comes to the faith of the Bible, when it comes to faith in Jesus Christ, until you are willing to eternalize that and make that personal for yourself and say that <laughs> it's not about me, it's not about my way, it's not about what I can do, it's not about how good I can be, it's not about the philosophies of the day, it's not about the last self-help book I read, it's about Jesus Christ and me and my relationship with him. And not just knowing and, and understanding, it's about me saying, okay, I can't do this on my own. Eternal life is not dependent on me, but it's offered for me. And you have to come to a place where you say, Lord, I believe and I accept you as my savior.
Once you've done that, you begin a journey of life and faith that can be, if you allow it to be, if you embrace it, if you buy into it, and allow yourself to get into it, allow that to become the priority. I'm not just saying the priority on Sundays. I'm saying if you allow this walk, this way, to become the priority of your life and allow it to interweave itself throughout every aspect of your life, your family, your marriage, your parenting, your work, everything in life, every relationship you have. If you allow this way of Jesus to interweave itself into everything, it'll change you. It'll make a difference in you. And that is how give you a little bit of the ending while we're still starting at the beginning. That is how we lift Jesus up to the world so that he draws them to himself. Jesus didn't perform miracles as a display of power. If Jesus wanted to take over and force us, you know, there's huge debates today about freedom and liberty and personal rights. And it's on both sides, right? There's arguments for and against. And fortunately for me, <laughs> my job does not call me to adjudicate that matter. I just bring attention to it and use it as an illustration. While all, all of our rights and freedoms can be debated this way, Jesus chose not to show off with his power to force us to accept him. He said, here is my gift to you. You must accept it. It's on you. See, the miracles of Jesus weren't a display of his power. He wasn't doing it to show off. He wasn't doing it to be the center ring in a three-ring circus. Everything Jesus did was on purpose for a purpose. Even his healings, it wasn't simply to heal. I mean, that was the main event that launched something, but he would, he would take off from healing and use it as an opportunity to teach and to explain and to help people understand who he was and what he could do for us. I think as we minister, as we get involved in ministry and you know, now as we're starting, hopefully, hopefully starting to come out of this pandemic and we're starting to see the light of day again. As we begin to get back into ministry and start doing, performing the works of, of the church and our faith, I think it'd be wise for us to remember that Jesus showed his love and compassion for people before he told them what they needed. Jesus got their attention with how, how much he loved them long before he ever told them what they truly needed. And as we serve God, as we get involved in ministry, as we go and do the things we do in life, and claim to represent Jesus, I think it's incredibly important that we realize and remember that we, stay, we should stay focused on what it is that we're called to do. So 
these seven I am statements that Jesus made, we're going to be covering them over the next couple weeks, talking about them. And some of them, we're going to be, there are, there are several different applications. If you're a teacher, if you uh, study or you break things down uh, for yourself, as far as the Bible goes, that was almost tragic right there. Um, as you bre- if you're in the, in the habit of breaking things down, I know there's several different ways we can go with some of these teachings, several different ways we can go. Some of them are just going to hone in on one idea, on one concept that Jesus is trying to teach. Because, you know, the old phrase, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? Well, the way you grow in your faith is just one step at a time. You don't try to, you, you don't try to make, uh, make the, the huge growth steps all at once. It's one step at a time. One step at a time, one step at a time. That's why it's important to be faithful to church. That's why it's important to be a part of a Bible study. That's why it's important to read your Bible so that you can learn every day a new step, a new way to go, a new, a, a, a new, the, next, uh, the next step in the road in the journey that God has called you to take. The first one we see that we're going to cover this morning is in, we find in John chapter 11, verse 25. Now, these are not in order of appearance. Uh, but they are, uh, we're covering them as I, I think they, they fit. The first one is John eleven twenty five, 25, where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. That's kind of an odd declaration to make. I am the resurrection and the life. But when you start to piece together the ministry of Jesus Christ, and his teachings, and what it is, his primary purpose for coming here, dying on the cross for people, dying on the cross for our sins, dying on the cross to pay the price of, uh, of redemption for the human race, it starts to make more sense. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. In other words, I am the beginning. I am the essence of life. I am the resurrection for you, for a human being. I am the resurrection. We find our life in him. And we find our lives in him. We find life in him and we find our lives in him. What is he talking about with resurrection? Well, Ephesians chapter 2, beginning of verse 4 says, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive in Christ, with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You were saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. You see, the Bible says that as human beings, we are dead in sin. Now, I know there's a lot of different theological uh, places and that people start from, but I, and I'm, I don't mean this sarcastically. I mean this just literally and honestly. I come from a perspective of the, of the Bible, what the Bible has to say. And the Bible says that I am born in sin. 
And because I'm born in sin as a human being, it's called original sin and whatever, whatever other title people have put to it, the Bible says I'm born in sin. And because I'm born in sin, the Bible says I am dead spiritually. In fact, a couple places in the Bible it says dead, dead while you, uh, you're dead while you live. And that's the big problem with mankind, that we are dead in sin. Jesus Christ came down to die on the cross to pay the price for those sins. When he did, the Bible says that he overcame the power of death, hell, and the grave. He took the keys to hell, and now he ever lives to make intercession for us. And the sacrifice that he made on the cross paid the price for all of our sins. So where does that come into play with resurrection? Well, the Bible says he wants to make you alive. If you're here this morning, you've never asked Jesus Christ into your heart to be your savior. The Bible says your spiritual condition right now is dead. Your spirit is dead in sin. And Jesus died to make you alive. And if you accept his sacrifice for your sins, he will resurrect your spirit from the dead and make you alive in Christ. And that's the new life that our name represents, the new life in Christ. And then he has a life for you to live. That life that we now have to live is uh, at times a struggle, at times incredibly difficult, at times amazingly frustrating, at times questionable, at times frightening. But yet and still with all the negative, it can be the life of the greatest joy you've ever known Ever. And it could be a life of blessing, and it could be a life of discovery, if you will follow Jesus Christ. The problem many of us fall into when it comes to living for Christ is that we begin to live in fear. And many people have been taught and raised that um, it's something that this life that you've been given, this, this gift of salvation you've been given is something that you have to hang on to, something that you have to continue to earn, something that you don't ever want to lose because it's the pearl of great price in your life. And Jesus said when he gave this gift to us, he called it eternal life. And he called it eternal life for a reason. Because he wants you to understand that you are secure in him. And as this life goes on, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to struggle. You're going to get frustrated. I know none of you that are in marriage relationships have any kind of disagreement or struggle, correct? Everybody's that way, right? Life is perfect. Life is uh, lollipops and lemonade, and everything is wonderful. I say that as my wife is teaching Sunday school. <laughs> <clears throat> because I'm a smart man. God knows that your life is going to be a struggle. God knew that 
there would be pitfalls and difficulties and great highs as well as great lows. And he also knew because he created us that discouragement, disillusionment, anger, frustration, the desire to just give up and walk away would be our greatest struggles and battles as followers of Christ. Listen, you can say, I battle with this, I battle with that. The ultimate battle that Satan is wanting you to fight and lose, it may be because of your financial situation. It may be be because of your uh, struggles in your marriage. It might be because of work. It might be because of the neighborhood you live in or the school system or a pandemic. Those are all contributing factors to the one great battle Satan wants to fight with you and win. And that's the battle to give up. He wants you to quit. He wants you to quit so bad. I couldn't, I don't, couldn't speak for Satan. I don't know how bad he wants you to quit, but he wants you to quit bad. He wants to ruin your life. He wants to ruin your walk. And I think what's the cruel thing, I'm going to battle this seat all morning, I'm going to tell you. My, my foot has been swelling and going down and swelling and going down. And it, uh, anyway, uh, what's so cruel about the way Satan wants to fight this battle with you is that he doesn't necessarily want to take you out of the fight permanently. Check this out. He wants to ruin your life and your walk with the Lord so that you can be a bad example. He wants, you know, remember, I, I know when, when I was growing up, there was a t-shirt that said, had a purpose in, have a purpose in life, be a bad example. I never wore it, but I, I saw people with it. And that's what he wants you to be. He wants you to be an example of everything that can go wrong with following Jesus. He wants you to be a poor testimony. He wants you to be a poor example of faith. And that's why he's going to continue to try to drag you through the mud and the doldrums of life and pile on with you. Maybe I'm the only one that happens to, but does he ever, he, does he ever just pile on in your life? Just one thing after the other, like you did with Job in one day? And, what, they just, and the hits just keep coming. It's like listening to a Beatles album. The hits just keep coming, Right? So much so that he wants you to get to the point where you say, enough is enough. I'm tapping out and I'm walking away. Jesus wanted to give us a sense of security with this eternal life. He wanted to say, listen, I know. I, he, he told us, man. He said, listen, the world is going to hate you because it hates me. He said, in this life, you're going to have trouble. But be of good, good, good courage because I have overcome the world. He says over and over and over again, this life for followers of Christ, this life is going to be a battle. It's going to be a struggle. That's the way it is. You have opposition. You have somebody that you're playing against, somebody that you're fighting against, and they want to win it sometimes more than you do. So when Jesus said, I'm the resurrection of the, and the life, one of the things that he was saying to, and I, th I think one of the primary truths 
of his teaching here is that not only will I raise you spiritually from the dead, but I will give you life and life eternal that will be yours. This is one thing I think Jesus was saying to us is, this is one thing you don't have to worry about, right? This is one thing you don't have to worry about. Listen, you're gonna struggle. Oh, well, Jesus expects us to sin? No, but he knows the nature of a human. That's why 1 John 1, 9 is in the Bible. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What he wanted us to see and understand was this. The matter of your eternal soul is settled. It's settled. He tells us this in John chapter 10, beginning of verse 28. Jesus is speaking. He says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one, no one, no one. That's an all-inclusive statement. No one. You know who no one includes? You. No one includes you. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. I was raised and taught that this is double security, right? You're in Jesus' hand and Jesus is in God the Father's hand and nobody can take you out of their hands. When you accept Christ as your personal Savior, when you ask him to come into your heart, forgive your sins, and give you new life, the Bible says that Jesus does that. He gives you eternal life, and it's yours forever. And I know some people have a real problem with that. I know some people have a real issue with that. I don't. I, it, to me, thinking that I can lose my salvation doesn't jibe with the love of Christ. It doesn't, it, it doesn't go with the, the concept of what Jesus came to this earth for. If I can lose a free gift from him that he says was eternal, what in the world am I doing? But see, so many people, maybe you, maybe you struggle with this, the fact that you have to keep yourself in the love of God. He's saying to you, no, you're there. I've got you. Okay, I, I have you. That matter is settled. Yes, you're going to make a mistake. Yes, you're going you're, you're to fall. You're going to struggle. You're going to get discouraged. But I'm still here. You have an anchor that keeps your soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll. Anchored in the rock that cannot move. Grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. You see, Jesus wants you to understand from the very outset that you are his and he is yours and there's never a divorce going to happen. He also says this in Romans 8. If you need more, more scriptural proof of this, Romans chapter 8, beginning of verse 35. Paul is asking a rhetorical question. He says, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you, we are be being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, all of these things. I mean, Paul just gave a very broad description of life. First of all, he says, who can separate us from the love of Christ? And then he goes in and says, what can't separate us from the love of Christ? And he says, all of these things, 
every issue, every situation, every problem in life that can come up, every struggle, every trial, every challenge, all of these things that come up in life. No, they can't. They can't separate you. He says in all these things, we are not conquerors. We're more than conquerors. Jesus is the undefeated. He is the undefeated one. He will never lose a battle. He's never lost a battle. Even when Satan thought he won at the cross, all he was doing was falling right in to God's plan because that was his ultimate plan for eternity. He goes on, Paul wants to give us the understanding, the depth of his understanding and his, his total buy-in to this concept of Jesus being the resurrection and the life and us being eternally his once we accept Jesus as our Savior. And he says, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. One thing that I love about that passage is, I mean, the, the, the comparisons that he makes and the, the different scenarios that he writes about there cover a, a, a wide variety of life, but he says, neither life nor death. Death can't separate me from the love of God because death is when it all begins, man. Death is when it all starts for us. Death is when eternity, the Bible says to be absent from the spirit is to be present with the Lord. I, I, I don't usually go into uh, conversations that I have with people that are, uh, that are um, supposed to be kept private. And I, I don't try to tell tales out of school. But there are times when people uh, talk to me and they allow me, they say you can tell people and, you know, if you ever want to use it. And we lost a dear woman this past, this past summer. And we lost Vicki, Vicki Colwell. And I think some of us are still, still kind of spiraling a little bit about Vicki and, and the loss of such a dear soul. Someone who just wanted to love people and fell so deeply in love with Jesus that he was ever, literally for Vicki every breath that she breathed. She's an amazing woman, and she had such an incredible impact on this church. And I was able to talk many times with her and talk with her and share with her and reassure her that she really did make a difference here at our church. And I'm sure as my parents who have counseled people near the end of their lives and talked with them can tell you there are a lot of very deep questions that come up. And Vicki asked me this question, man. She said, Pastor John... Hmm. When does it happen? So what do you mean, Vicky? She said, when I die, when do I get to heaven? When do I get to see Jesus? She said, Am I, am I there for a while? Am I, am I in the grave for a while? Does it, does it take time? She said, I just, 
I'm trying to, I'm trying to understand that because Vicky knew that her time was short. She, Vicky, Vicky was very conscious. For those of you who spent any time with Vicky near the end of the life, end of her life, you knew Vicky was very conscious about her shortage of time. And I thought that was just an amazing question, a heartfelt question. I said, Vicky, and the Bible says so clearly to us, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It's like falling asleep on earth and waking up in heaven. That's all it is. It's an, as the Bible says, in an instant. I believe Vicky is there, as my father used to say, kicking up gold dust on Hallelujah Boulevard. And Vicky, I'm telling you folks, Vicky lived her last days and took her last breath with that confidence. We, and I'm not saying this that Vicky, because Vicky lived her life for Jesus. We don't need to wait till our last breath to enjoy and to live our salvation. Jesus told you, told us, I am the resurrection. I am your resurrection. I am your life. That's a life you're never going to lose. That's a gift that's never going to be taken away. That gift is yours forever. Now live like it. That, your, that gift can never be lost. Now live that way. You see, Jesus wanted to take away, I believe he wanted to take away the doubt. I believe he wanted to take away the fear. If you're always in fear of losing something, remember the story of, of the talents? The guy that got the most talents went out and he doubled it. The guy that got the middle amount of talents went out and doubled it. What about the, the guy that got one talent? What did he do with it? He buried it. Why? Because he was terrified of losing it. Jesus didn't pronounce judgment, or Jesus didn't give a, a harsh reply to the dude that was the wolf of Wall Street that took the 10 talents and doubled them, or the guy that took the five talents and doubled them. His harsh criticism was for the guy who went and buried that talent because it brought no return. He was so afraid of losing what he had been given that he was, he was terrified to use it. I believe what Jesus is trying to tell us here is this. You're mine forever. You're not going anywhere. You are not going anywhere. We are, man, this is such an amazing picture. We are adopted into the family of God permanently. Never going anywhere. Now, because we have that assurance, we can live the life he's called us to live. We can take risks. We can take chances. We can go out and do things and not be afraid to fail. Because sometimes failure is just the next step in climbing the ladder of success in your walk with the Lord. This is the beginning of an eternal relationship that will never, ever end. It gives you the freedom to serve and to risk and to try 
And yeah, the safety net of Jesus. I am his and he is mine. The second I am that we see is this. It's a threefold I am. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. We see that in John 14, verse 6. Now, he is our path. He's our map. He's our guide for life. That's what he says, when I'm, I am the way. And in fact, many people, many of the, the disciples, when they were in the book of Acts, a couple times when, when they were... Uh, when they were questioned or when they were uh, plotted against, like Paul, when Paul, would, when Paul was going by Saul of Tarsus, remember he persecuted the church. And what did he, he went to the high priest, and what did he ask for from the high priest? He asked for letters so that he could go and persecute any that he found of the way. Anybody that he found of the way. And other places in the book of Acts, we're told that these people stood out. The followers of Christ stood out and people took note of them. Why? Because they knew they had been with Jesus and they were people of the way. I love that. I think that's such a great descriptive of what our lives are supposed to be as followers of Christ. We are to be followers of the way. Well, what's the way? Okay, do I have to figure that out? No, Jesus says, I am the way. I'm the way. Who was Jesus? I mean, this is like theology 101, right? We go back, who was Jesus? Jesus in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. Jesus was the Word. The Word became flesh and lived among us. Jesus was the living Bible. And now we have his Word and his actions and his teachings by which to live our lives. And if you think it's limiting to be a follower of Christ, to, to live according to the Bible, then you're just not trying. Because you'll never be able to exhaust the, the passionate following of Christ and everything and, and master everything that he wants us to master in this life. And Jesus said he's the way and he's the life what I want to focus in on there is this. He said, I am the truth. I am the truth. He is the truth. And what was he trying to get across to us there? I believe what one of the things, one of the aspects that he's trying to teach us is this. The entire message of the gospel, all that Jesus taught, everything he did, every miracle he performed, every healing he granted, every uh, action he, he, he showed, every teaching he gave, all of it. Everything that the Bible has to say to us, it all depends on Jesus being the truth. All of it. It all depends on Jesus being the truth. Do you realize as a follower of Christ, if you've given your life to him and you've chosen to follow him, you are hanging your hat on Jesus. You're hanging your life on Jesus. You're not hanging your life on New Life Church. You're not hanging your life on Pastor John Chase. You're not hanging your life on the King James Bible, the Christian Standard Bible, the New International Version. You're not hanging your hat on Hillsong music, on Third Day music. You're not hanging your hat on Michael W. Smith music. 
You are hanging your hat on Jesus Christ. You are hanging your life on Jesus Christ. The only claim that you can make that all of this is true and all of this matters is this. Jesus Christ is the truth. He says, you will know the truth and what? The truth will keep you in bondage. The truth, the, the truth will, will, will leave you in confusion and doubt. Jesus says, you'll know the truth. You'll know me. And the truth, I, will set you free. I am freedom because I'm the truth. I am satisfaction because I am the truth. I am your heart's desire because I am the truth. I am the answer to all of your questions because I am the truth. Everything you can dream of in this life, everything you chase in this life, every bit of knowledge you want to know and understand, if you want to know the meaning of life, get to know the truth. Because he is the truth, and the truth will set you free. In more areas than you can imagine, that's one little statement one declarative statement that Jesus makes that has so many different meanings and so many different applications. He's the truth that sets you free from the bondage of sin and hell and the grave. And that truth will bring your soul to life and give you freedom and eternity as a gift. He is the truth that answers all the lies that people have told about you and told to your face about you all your life. He is the truth that answers the mystery of the question, what does my life mean and why do I matter? He is the truth. The absolute, without a doubt, unassailable, an undeniable truth. He is the truth that is so clear, so total, that nothing but a lie or a web of lies can be used to dispute it. See, I think that's where we make our mistake as followers of Christ when it comes to discussions about faith and what many want to call religion churches and belief systems, we deviate from the truth of the fact that Jesus is the starting point. Listen, I'll have a conversation with people. I'll listen to what, they, what their beliefs are all about. I'll even read books about other faiths. But that's just for knowledge and information. As I'm not seeking anything there. I've found the truth. The truth has set me free. And I start from a position of the power of God when it comes to talking about my faith to others. I don't accept excuses. I don't want to follow and go down other roads because if I am distracted and go down other areas and other paths and other avenues, like politics, like 
what they're doing at another church. I took my prayer drive last night and I just felt compelled. I had to go down into Connecticut and I just felt compelled. There's a couple new churches that have started and, and have new buildings. And I just pulled in their parking lot and I, I'm like, you know, the bald guy with a goatee and a pickup truck or a van is always a suspect, right? So I'm very careful. I look around first, but I just felt compelled to drive into their parking lots and drive around their building and cover those churches in prayer. Because it's not about building the kingdom of new life. It's not about building the, the, the John Chase ministries. God help me if I ever name a ministry after myself. It's not about me, man. It's about him. The, being a pastor is supposed to be plug and play. What I mean by that is, if God says it's time for me to go, if God says my time on earth is over and my life is at an end, I don't even like to talk about that, but if, it, if that's it, then there should be somebody, there, there's somebody else that he's called to fill this job. It's not a competition for it. It's not a battle over it. God has a plan. He has a plan. And it's someone same thing in your life that will hold to the truth. And in your life, <laughs> what is important is that you don't get caught up in all the distractions that are going on. We don't take different paths and deviate from the path that this church is called to follow. Listen, that's, that's where the battle's being engaged now. Everybody, I'll, I'll make a couple of the statements. Everybody wants me to take a political stand on something. Not going to happen, man. I'll guarantee you that nobody in this church can really tell you where I stand politically. I'll guarantee you may think you know where I stand. I'll guarantee you, you have no idea. You, you don't know. You don't know. Go Dodgers. That's my answer. That's my answer. Go Dodgers. Because... While that is important, it's important to be a good citizen, it's important if that's what God has called you to do, to impact your community and to make the lives of others and the conditions of others better, man, that's great, but that's not what he's called me to do. He's called me to preach the word. He's called me to, lose, to leave a, lead a church. He's called me to hold to the truth. And even if he has called you to a life of politics, if he's called you to be an entrepreneur, if he's called you to be support personnel in a, in a business, if he's called you to be a, a parent, a, a, a mother, whatever he's called you to be, you're called to be that and to hold to the truth. That's what you're called to do. If you're a businessman, you're called to be truthful and honest. If you're a businesswoman, be truthful and honest. Jesus covered these things. He even talked about being a soldier, <clears throat> which I love. He said, if you're a soldier, obey your leaders. Don't mistreat your people. Don't mistreat those who are under you. Follow your orders. Live the truth. In fact, he says, he tells us to live our truth in such a way that they have to make up lies about us to attack us. 
That's a hard measure to, look, to live up to. That's a hard standard to keep yourself to. But it's a worthy goal. That you live a life of truth so deeply that the only way they can come at you is by telling a lie. Well, how do you know the truth? I mean, we live in a day and age, and we're going to wrap it up with this. We live in a day and age where everybody says, I've got, I've got my truth, right? I've got my truth. It's, I, I've got to be honest with you. It's, the mo- it's one of the most, I, I say, can't say the most because there's many new phrases that frustrate me. But the one that I'm, I'm living my truth, I'm speaking my truth, no, <laughs> you can't. There's truth, man. There's truth. And you either believe it or you don't. But there's truth. And, and I, I always, of course, being a wise guy, I always say, well, they say, no, there is no truth. Okay, what's two plus two? What's four? I've actually had people say, well, it depends on what you're talking about. Really? Really? Okay. All right, if I've got two apples and I have two bananas, I have four pieces of fruit. Just saying. Just saying. See, it frustrates me. There's the truth. And as Christians, we need to live and hang on to the truth. But how do you know what's true? Ah, Jesus has given us a test to put things to. 1 John chapter 4, beginning of verse 1. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit. I'm telling you, folks, we'll stop right there for a second. Don't believe everybody that says, I'm a Christian and I've got a word from the Lord for you. When somebody comes to me and says, John, I've got a word for the Lord for you, I say, well, what verse did God give you to tell me? Oh, oh, no, uh, 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 no, brother, listen, man. The Bible's complete. The word of God is complete. He's not giving you a revelation for me. What you're trying to do is tell me what you think I should do. Because usually it revolves around how I should run my church or how I should uh, run my services or how much authority I should give them to come in and do things in my church. No. Tell you what, you work on getting the word of God in your life and get the truth of the word of God, and then we'll talk about it. I don't, I, you may, you may, that may be something that you love to hear, man, but I don't buy it. How's that? Why? Because I put it to this test. Don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. That every spirit that does not confess Jesus is, is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist. That's not the spirit of the Antichrist. It's the spirit of Antichrist or being against Christ. Okay, that's not, that's not a last day's statement. That's just saying this is what these kind of people, these kind of statements, these kind of belief systems are against Christ. They're against the truth. They're against the way. They're against the word of God. So try them. Put them to the test. Well, how do I put them to the test? See what the Bible has to say. See what the Bible has to say about that. Had someone offered to, no lie, they offered to heal me, heal my hip with magic. I, I wasn't Harry Potter. 
they offered to heal my hip with magic. Literally said that. I'll, I'll take my chances with the VA, <laughs> okay? I, because the Bible tells me that that's not gonna happen, all right? You can think all you want, you can, nope, nope. The Wizard of Oz is just a story. Try those spirits. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You're confused in your walk with the Lord because you're not testing the spirits to see if they're true. That includes me, by the way. What you hear from me, take it for what it is and put it to this test and ask God to give you discernment and wisdom. I'm not afraid of that. Maybe, man, our Wednesday night Bible studies, I'm going a little bit too long here, but our Wednesday night Bible studies are great conversations. Some of you who join us online, um, the, you, hear, you hear probably a one-sided conversation because you hear me, but you don't hear them. But we have great conversations. And I've learned as much from them, from the students of that class, as they've learned from me. I, I hope they've learned from me. But we put things to the biblical test, and that's what you should do. He is the way, he's the truth. And he wants to be that for your life. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be here today, the opportunity to dig into your scriptures, to learn who you are and what you want to be for us. Lord, so many times we can come at faith as such a superficial thing, and it's only a Sunday matter. Father, you want it to be part of our lives. Lord, I pray that we'll all dig deeper into the faith that you've offered to us, the faith that you've given to us, and that we'll make these truths that you've shared, that your word teaches us, to be truth for our lives. Father, as Elvin said at the beginning, there are many of us, Lord, that are just being tossed around right now, and life is a jumble, and life is uh, just nonstop. Lord, would you slow things down for us? I know we're living in a whirlwind, and I know it, just one thing after the other, but God, would you be the eye of the hurricane for us? Would you be, as your word says, our rest, our center? And may we run to you as you tell us to, for rest, comfort, to calm our fears. We thank you for this church. Thank you for these people, Father. May all that we do in our lives bring glory to you. May we lift up Jesus Christ so that he will draw all to himself. Bless us as we go, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.